That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! very welcome to the Irishman Abroad Podcast Awards for 2021. A one-of-a-kind look back at the highlights from our episodes from this calendar year, featuring never-before-publicly-released content from our premium feed on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. You'll know already that that is how we've managed to produce that many podcasts and keep them all weekly this year. It's through the support of our listeners over on Patreon. If you're listening on Patreon to this episode, you could look at it as an opportunity to whet your appetite for some of the episodes you might have missed from this crammed feed that we've given you over the last 12 months. Each year to decide the awards, we bring together a judging panel consisting of the best minds, tastemakers and content creators Ireland has to offer. And we put them up in Dublin's Shelburne Hotel for a weekend to take part in a kind of listening party where they review the best moments from more than 150 episodes of An Irishman Abroad that we've released in the past year. And it's always just such a great weekend and it throws up so many fun conversations between people you'd never put together, all trying to figure out who deserves the various awards on offer. I'll never forget Ruby Walsh going back and forth with Alan Hughes over which episode had the best Louis Walsh story in it. Really fun memories. Unfortunately, due to COVID, Brian Connolly and I had to pick the award winners ourselves this year, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't difficult and good crack at the same time. So let's start off with our first category. Well, of course, the Saw Doctors are a band I wanted on the podcast, maybe from the word go. I tried everything to get in contact with them, and there never seemed to be the right time to do it. And so much of Irishman Abroad is built on persistence, consistency, and sending emails over and over again to people that you'd like to hear on the show and who you get in touch with me and say... Can you have this person on? And you know who these people are. And the Saw Doctors was one that I received many, many times. Well, we were celebrating the release of their most famous album this August. And the opportunity came up to sit down and talk to Leo Moran at last. To say the conversation delivered on every level is an understatement. Uh, I love having these conversations with people ordinary people who went on to do extraordinary things it's the origin story element of it that really just blows my mind every time and here in this clip and our first award winner leo explains the perseverance needed to get the saw doctors to where they needed to go and also the defining moment 
that took them from a band playing in a pub in Galway six nights or six nights in a row, six Tuesday nights in a row, in the hope that something good might come of it, to a band that would eventually go on to break all kinds of records. So the award for Best Story of Perseverance for 2021 goes to Leo Moran and the Saw Doctors. I was working in Machnus at the time in Galway and Parik was knocking around and we were getting the songs together and Terps was with us and I was the bass player. I always wanted to be the bass player. JJ Burnell was my childhood hero. Uh, that's the kind of thing I wanted to do. Mm. And when, when I started a band, when we started a band originally, my friends in McHugh's, I wanted to be the bass, the bass player. But Mousy took up the bass. And the first day he took it in his hand, he was able to play the bass. So I had to learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> but when the saw doctors came around, then I got the bass because we didn't have a bass player. But what really happened was, Porrick said we should do a residency in the Keys Bar. And we had all the kind of mockness people we were working with as a kind of a renter crowd, they would come anyway. So we, we got the Keys Bar on a Tuesday night for six Tuesday nights in a row in the middle of winter in like this this February, say, of uh, 88. And that's really when the band started to sound like it could entertain people. Yeah. And, and, that's, and is that where Mike Scott sees the band? Yes, Mike Scott and the Waterboys are out in Spiddle at the time recording Fisherman's Blues. And they used to come into town and have a session or have a drink or whatever. And Mike came in and saw it and he said, oh, I like this. We're going to be doing um, an Irish tour was coming up. It was huge. The Waterboys were mm. so exciting, so new, so different. They had moved into a phase where they were taking on country music and gospel and folk and making it loud and beautiful. And that at that stage, we got invited to go on their tour. And we thought then, again, we're not making enough of a racket. Maybe we need somebody else in the band. So we asked um, Derek Murray from Donegal, who was the guitar player in the Stunning, great friend of ours, played with us for years. And he recommended Pierce Doherty to play the bass. So I, I said to Derek, is he good now? Is he a good bass player? And Derek said, well, he's so G. Now, I actually know Pierce a little bit. And uh, he does seem like the type of character who who did Suchi. Uh, who no, did Derek's fit, judgment was spot on. He yeah. fits in perfectly. But I wanted to ask, yeah. though, that, as you say, that is a huge moment. We don't have this album that I that we're celebrating now without that moment of Mike Scott and the Waterboys asking you on this tour. Yeah. There had to be a part of you that was a bit like, oh, shite, I, I, are we able for this? Because this is absolutely. Yeah. So so this is a ahead of them asking you to come with them to the UK for the next six weeks after this tour. Uh, which is obviously a big move towards professionalism and there's bank loans involved at that point. This this moment that Mike Scott says this, is there uh, is there any hesitation in you guys? And is there a band meeting around this? Well, I'm sure there was a band meeting, uh, but 
there was no hesitation, no. Davy was the only one really with uh, Davy had kids and a uh, job at the time. Mm. But even that, even going around Ireland was no threat to that because you could c- come and go on the one night if you had to. And uh, Pierce was in college, so it was a bit difficult for him because he, he's, uh, his, uh, he was in science and he was going to find it a bit tricky. But he, at the same time, he was going to go ahead and do it. And our first gig was in about a week's time. So we did a, a warm-up gig in uh, out in the Beach Hotel in Salt Hill. And Pierce played his first gig with us at that stage. And, you know, we were very under-rehearsed. And our first show with the Waterboys was in Cork City Hall. Do you know Cork City Hall? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bit bigger than the keys. It's a little bit bigger, <laughs> all right. There had to be a certain amount of intimidation. And there ha- there's always someone in a band who's more nervous than the others. <laughs> Who was that person? It was uh, It was hard to believe it was Pierce, but you couldn't blame him it being his second gig with the band. <laughs> after the first gig, after the first song we did, you can hear Pierce on the tape saying off mic, but not off mic far enough because he wasn't used to... <laughs> Used to that kind of thing at the st- at that stage, he said, "Jesus Christ, I'm shutting myself." <laughs> <laughs> Mid gig, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was the um, that was the stage we were at, and obviously it was huge. I remember that the stage in Cork City Hall is raked as well. We'd never come across that, so we're it's almost like you're standing on high heels, <laughs> looking out at this vast arena that you've never. Never played that kind of thing to before, but funnily enough, we were filling the the sound at that stage. Mm. We were actually making the racket that we needed to. Well, from one Galway story, we go to another for our award for courage and bravery in 2021. There was really only one candidate for this prize: Catherine Corliss and her book Belonging tells the story of the tomb mother and baby home in Galway and her own life and how she came to slowly uncover the dark secret that lay there. The bodies of 796 babies buried in a mass grave that appeared to be a sewage tank. Catherine has been finding out who those children were and how they came to that end and taking on the establishment to find the truth that needed to come out. She released this book in the hope of explaining the story and her own life and raising some money for the Tirnanog Orphanage. It's one of my books of the year, but hearing her talk is just so powerful. And her courage and stamina to get through this is something that... I don't think we got more emails this year than for this episode. She's a mind-blowing human being and she's the winner of our award for courage in 2021. It's Catherine Corliss. I can only give my own experience. I can only say I I couldn't rest until I did something about this. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't try my utmost to do my part to expose the injustice. I mean, there's injustice in every corner in life. And I just believe that it's, you know, it's, it's a healing for me. 
mm. and, and my own problems. And as, as in the book, my own mental health, it's a healing in a way. It, gave me, it gives me a sense of uh, relief and courage and to know that I did my best. And, and that's a healing for me. With, uh, I do go through mental torture. And um, I do believe there's healing in this when you go out and do something and beat all the odds and stand up just to, to uh, people who, who treat others cruelly and people who are mean. Yeah. There are bullies left, right and centre everywhere. Yeah. Stand up to them because uh, the more you, you bend down and the worse life gets for you, but stand up to everything and everybody because uh, that's one thing in my mind. People look up to politicians, they look up to archbishops and, 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 and priests and everything. I don't. Everyone, one, everyone is as good as one another and nobody should stand above anybody else. And if people got that into their mind and just say, I'm as good as you and live that way, it'll put in, you know, it'll give bullies something to think about because in my own family even, I would have a, a bully in the house who wasn't nice. And, uh, I mean, I was a child and I used to try and stand up to her. But... Um, you have to. You have to stand up to people and don't let anyone bully you ever. You're as good as them and better. Our next award is one that could have easily gone to Sonia O'Sullivan and Marion McKeown every single week. I have to give a very special shout out to them because they're obviously not eligible for awards as such in these categories. But they have been extraordinary this year at telling it like it is. Just on every uh, topic and area that we covered in wellness and athletics and running with Sonia, the zero BS approach uh, is what's made that show so special. And similarly with Marion, her take on America and analysis of really extraordinary year every Friday right from the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th has just been second to none I gave her a big shout out on Twitter the other day just to say just can we point out for a minute that Marion McCone is the best in the business and we get an hour with her every Friday where she tells it like it is and just the same with Sonia we needed a, a special award for the guest on the Sunday show who just spat truth for an hour and again a bit like Catherine Corliss there could only be one winner but there were an awful lot of people in the running for this when I went down through it from Rory O'Neill to Annie Mack Enda McNulty Joe Malloy Jessica Harrington uh, Mark Horgan Aidan O'Shea I mean there was an awful lot of truth tellers in there Jay Jordan I'm just looking at them going I could have picked any of these, but then the hour I had with Blind Boy early in the year was uh, a special moment in terms of the podcast because he really clarified some stuff for me, especially in a year when we're kind of looking at Ireland and shrugging our shoulders going, what the hell is going on here? He uh, certainly put something in to real focus particularly in this clip that we're about to play you now so I'd urge you to go back and listen to the Blind Boy episode from this year with the award for telling it like it is 
for 2021 goes to Blind Boy. If I'm completely honest, I, the whole, I'm not great on the old hope front, if you get me. Mm-hmm. And that's really, okay. really negative. Do you know? So I, I, I also try to avoid on my podcast. Like, I, I can't see, I, I don't see any immediate solutions right now to the housing crisis, to the rent crisis. I mean, when you really look into it, I mean, even the, the emergency accommodation, which is put forward as a solution to homelessness, emergency accommodation, it's not a solution to homelessness. The government have found a way to turn taxes into profits for hotels. Like, it, it, it's hard to have hope when you, when you, when you see people in power actively hating poor people and actively figuring out how can we pretend to solve something, but what we're actually doing is earning money for the private market, similarly with direct provision. I mean, the government's taking tax money that's allocated to help people in homelessness and instead paying this to hotels to give people temporary accommodation and not building houses and not providing homes. And that's ideological. And that's real ideological viciousness there, you know. So that's tough to have hope in that situation. I mean, we're, we're now facing the, the, the new situation where the current generation of fucking people in their 20s and early 20s, people are now emigrating, not because there's no jobs, but because they can't afford to rent. And that's just mad. Like, that's crazy. I know people who are moving to London, Jarla. Moving to fucking London because it's cheaper than Dublin. Like, I that's, believe it. yeah. that's crazy. But even the cost you of living I mean? is cheaper. Like, just even just going to the shops is but cheaper. But the idea of that, like, in, in 2011, 2012, when I would have been gigging in Soho Theatre and things like that, and I was really trying to make a go of it with the rubber bandits, I considered moving to London. And it was like, no, you can't do that. London's too expensive. This is insane. And now there's young artists moving to London because Dublin, it's cheaper than Dublin. Th- th- I didn't see that coming. Is it that? And sometimes I think that this happens no matter what the institution, that the higher up you go in it, the more removed you become from what your original intentions were. And it doesn't matter if it's music, comedy or politics. That's just how it works, how it happens. Is is that what's happened or is it more systemic and inbuilt that you actually can't bring about change from within because so of deep, how it's set a, up? There's a deep system. Do you know who'd be a good podcast guest for you? There's an academic called Rory Hearn, who he's in a UCD, I believe, and he's an expert on social policy. And Rory explains literally why Ireland is in this situation with housing and rent. And it's ideological and it's systematic and it's been ongoing for about 25 years. And when you see it like that, you realize there's a class of people in power who kind of want this. And that's 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 a tough one to go up against. Like you see there with like... Even the, like the vulture funds buying that entire estate in Maynooth, mm. like there mm. was an entire estate of new houses that people were happy about because it's like, here's some new houses. There's a shortage of houses. They're going to go to first time buyers. And then a vulture fund comes in and buys them all. 
so they can sell them to the rental market. And what appears to have happened is with the recession and the government set up NAMA to buy all the bad loans, they are now being purchased by vulture funds and the government kind of had its its hands tied up behind its back a bit. And when you see it like that, I'll tell you another thing too. You know Jacob Rees-Mogg? Yeah. So his dad wrote a book called Blood on the Streets and he wrote this book in 1983. It's a book for rich people about how they can earn money from recessions. And when you see that recessions are actually a good thing, when you have a load of money, that's the type of thing that makes me fearful of hope as well. When a recession happens, people in the middle and the bottom, they have to throw the keys in their door with their fucking mortgages. They lose their property. They lose their jobs. All this debris from the chaos of a recession is now very cheap. And then the people who have the capital at the top buy it all up. And then you return to the next to times of economic stability and that's why you get this huge inequality. That's why the 1% gets richer because they have the capital to buy up the debris when things go to shit. So when you see it that way, you realise, oh fuck, recessions are almost inbuilt to our structure as something that benefits the people at the top. That's pretty freaky. And that's not conspiracy theory, that's just a basic understanding of how, how the structures of the world are working at the moment. So back in the beginning of this podcast series in 2013, oh, I still laugh when I think about it. We're nearly, we're nearly a 10 years into this. I used to ask at the end of every episode, what is the piece of advice that you go back to all the time? Uh, I don't know why I stopped asking the question, probably because I probably got tired of asking it. And it just seemed a bit too formulaic to keep asking it. But now the advice just organically happens. It comes up in every episode. And I guess I scribble down the ones that really stick with me. Sonia's episodes on a Tuesday are essentially her advising me and you on how to run. Uh, So that's stuff that is just essential to how I live now. Laura Whitmore comes on, though, and she releases a book of her advice. And... It did cross over with what Sonia said, and it's a piece of advice that has stuck with me throughout the year, and I've decided that it will receive the Irishman Abroad Award for Best Advice in 2021. It's this advice on comparing yourself to other people and the damage that that can do to you. In terms of keeping the head down, playing your own game, that seems to be the thing that worked for me this year. And I think it's the thing that I advise everyone to do in the coming year. Don't do it. No matter how much you're on Strava or how much you're scrolling through your social media feed, the comparison is an absolute killer. And no one articulated that better than Laura Whitmore this year. A lot of it comes from yourself as well. Do Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it comes from... Me, uh, you know, I can blame and I will blame media outlets, which I'll go on to do. But but a lot of it does come from yourself, you comparing. But I remember even, and I talk about this as well, like when I first started out, you know, to enter fashion magazines was a big thing when you started. But it was always who wore it best, do you know? And it's like 
people style outfits differently and it's like one of them is going to be better than the other. So I remember once seeing it was like me and Fern Cotton wearing the same outfit and it's like, who wore it best? And I was like, we both look fucking great. Do you know what I mean? We're both styling <laughs> it differently. Why do we need a winner? Yeah. Yeah. Unique people. We wear things differently. That's okay. But that's not the narrative that was forced on us. And and even like I always look at Edinburgh Fringe Festival and you know, you get you get the, out of five stars what your show is. And I'm always like, how do people do that? Because shows are so different up there. Like comedy is so different. You can have dark comedy. You can have slapstick. You can have, you know, all these different like theatrical shows. And then you can have some with, with no sound and some with movement. And I'm like, how is everyone out of five? And like that one can be three out of five and that can be four out of five when they're so different that you can't even measure them but are we just live in a world where we like to be able to race go back yeah race and put it into a box and understand it and comprehend it because we can't comprehend things that are too complex um and, and i think that's why we do compare um you know i get told like so who like who do you want to be or who do you want to be like or even when um when i got the job on celebrity juice now being asked, so are you the Fern? Or are you the Holly? And I was like, N- I'm I'm Laura, actually. <laughs> nice yeah, to meet you. Yeah, these are the two boxes. Pick. Yeah, these are the two boxes. So you and Emily have to kind of fit into one is Holly and one is Fern. I'm like, both of us are so different than like, like both like all incredible women, but we're all so different that we're we're not like we can't just re- you don't replace somebody because nobody's replaceable. Hmm. Well, you know, you talked about in this section in particular the bit that. I think a lot of people are going to identify with is this resentment that then can build when Mm -hmm. people in the same sphere as you are seen as obstacles, people who are seen as similar to you. And like Mm -hmm. I say this as a white male Irish comedian. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of you out there. (laughs) There is. You talk about boxes. I mean, it's toxic, though, Mm -hmm. and it, it eats and I've seen it eat people. But it's like you say, it's kind of fed to you as the way this works from such a young age, even like Mikey watching X Factor going, oh, this is how music works, that Mm -hmm. you're better because all the votes came in and, you Mm -hmm. you know, that's that you're not as good as that that person. But the the differentiation that you make about competition can be healthy and it can also be unhealthy and you tell this Meg Matthews story that I'd love you to tell uh, (laughs) where I was like my jaw hit the floor reading this section because I honestly thought that only happens in comedy because in comedy does that happen in comedy look come on Ian must know how wildly competitive this thing is yeah guys will kill each other (laughs) For, for, jobs. for jobs, yeah, and I won't because I, 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 I explain it probably better in the book, but just basically, I, I've never been I'm ambitious, but I've never really been competitive. Does that make sense? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a I'm kind of ambitious and competitive against myself, yeah, but you've never you know, been like, cutthroat, yeah. But but then I guess when you're kind of flung into this world, even doing the MTV competition, I didn't feel like it was competitive again, complete naivety, probably. I was just really happy to be there, you know, and I felt I, I felt I shouldn't be there. So I wasn't even trying to compete with other people. I was just hanging in for dear life. And sure. Then, you know, as you kind of progress, you meet different people. And I'm probably sometimes a little bit open and I'll like 
I, I learned to be guarded after probably a few years because I was probably too open kind of talking about things and you learn people around you sometimes people are out for themselves a little bit and, and fair yeah. play fair play because that's how a lot of people survive in the industry but it did kind of open my eyes going oh okay I, I just didn't think this that was in this world but then I again and I, I want to be careful because I don't want to like attack anyone because everyone has their own reasons for being the way they are and I need to learn from it because I you know this one person I talk about is I was like you know what it worked for them and fair play to them and maybe if I had a little bit of them in, in me I would be yeah, doing better but is that not a cop out Laura though because like the like, do, do, are we doing a kind of, oh, well, every man to his own. But but there's certainly some things that are unethical and not really yeah. morally right. Like certainly what happened to you with this person, essentially hearing you say something in private personal chat in a yeah. flat and then following the lead based on that chat, knowing that there was yeah. an opportunity available. Uh, you know, I don't think I go, oh, well, good luck to you. I go, I know. no, that's bullshit. I call bullshit on that. Like, do yeah. we have to call bullshit or, or is it your attitude of, oh, well, good luck to them. It served them very well in the industry and I wish them all the best. Is well, that now, just a way of sleeping at night? At the, time, at the time, it's probably bullshit. And maybe I should have called them out more than I did because I think I was just in a little bit of shock because I don't work that way. As I said, the TV world for me, I was so new to it. And I think I got into it quite quickly at a quite a high level because I won a competition. I was very lucky that I got a platform quite quickly. So I didn't do the, you know, I, you know, I put I put groundwork in and that I worked in a radio station, but I, I went from like being a researcher on radio to being on television interviewing Coldplay. Like there was a mm. massive jump there. And there are always going to be people who are assholes and there are always going to be people who do things the way you don't agree with and you can call them out on it but you can't change them Comedy is at the centre of the Irish man abroad and will always be 50% of my life as a stand-up comedian slash podcaster this whole show is born out of me looking for advice on how to do what I do uh, as my main job better Uh, with that in mind I'd always wanted to have Patrick Keelty on the podcast because no one has lived the advice that laughter is important more than Patrick Keelty. In this clip that you're about to hear, he describes how laughter helped him through the trauma of his teens. And it's an episode and a, a segment of an episode that stayed with me for a long, long time. And happy to say that Patrick became a friend after this episode. I always think those are the best ones where the person becomes your friend afterwards. But uh, I regard Patrick as a friend now and didn't know him up until this conversation. The award for explaining the importance of laughter goes to Patrick Keelty. My old man, my dad, was a shoe band promoter. And, you know, the Procule Hall in Dundrum, uh, he booked that for a while. And then there was another hall that he booked, uh, the Irish National Foresters Hall in, in Hilltown. And he had everybody in it from Roy Orbison to Engelbert Humperdinck. No. Yeah. To, so, so you know, to the Irish show bands. Uh, and I was seven, I'd have been seven years old and uh, Dundrum, 
I'll show you how small Dundrum was. Our phone number was Dundrum 272. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember years later, Louis Walsh, Louis Walsh at the time managed a band called Daddy Pool and the Lollipops. And uh, so this would have been the era of, you know, the Albert Reynolds, uh, you know, my dad knew Albert Reynolds and, and Marquis and, and, and all this type of stuff. And Louis Walsh said to me, met me years later, and he said, I always, Dundrum 272, that was your father's phone number. That is the amount of times I rang that number looking for a gig. And I said, yeah, Louis, I said, the amount of times I was told to answer the phone, and if it was Louis Walsh, I'm not in. <laughs> and, and so whenever you had that kind of, you know, little sprinkle of Irish, is it show business or what? Well, I'm not sure what, what it is. It was the most natural thing in the world to, you know, sit down with, you know, your mom and dad and watch Dave Allen or your dad to have Billy Conley cassettes. And, you know, that the, the, the always would have been humor like that as, as the, as the backdrop of the house. I remember one of those really liberating moments whenever you were sort of 12 or 13 and you were able to sit in your dad's car and listen to Billy Connolly swearing <laughs> and the two of you laughing and you weren't, it wasn't turned off. Mm. I think what was going on around us at the time, and, and it would have been obviously much more in Belfast and Derry and, and, and places like that. The humor in that, no one really wanted to get into that. I think if you look at you know, comedy exports from there, you know, you had Roy Walker, you had Frank Carson, you had comedians who had incredible timing and moved on to do other things, but nobody wanted to talk about what was actually happening at the time. Um, what do you put that down to? It, was that was that actual fear? I don't know. I, I, I think... I think what you had was you had, there was a binary prism that basically framed everything in Northern Ireland. And so you would never have had, you know, a, a Protestant or a unionist comedian making jokes about it because that would kind of make you believe that Northern Ireland wasn't functioning. Mm. So, so that would be undermining the cause. I think then that on the other side, you essentially had a campaign of murder that it sort of would have been framed, you know, the armed struggle. Like it sort of sounds more like when Mr. Darcy, you, you know, doesn't want someone to leave and pride and prejudice. You, you know, it's the, the armed struggle. Let's make... Let's make something terrible sound more romantic than it actually is. So so what you had was you had two sides and neither of them wanted to sort of look at the ludicrousness of the positions around it, I think. So it wasn't necessarily fear. I, I, I think it was sort of justification of existence, maybe. So the strain of 2021 is going to be the thing I think that we all look back on and remember. That year that you just lived through, you probably won't recognise the strain that you were under until you're not under that strain. 
I really wanted to give Emer Considine, the brilliant Irish rugby player and communicator, an award this year for how she explained recognising burnout when she saw it. And it's come up time and time again, the burnout thing, but no one I felt captured it better than Emer Considine. If you have an opportunity to step back and assess how you're feeling at this moment in time, you may need more than just two weeks off at Christmas because burnout is a sneaky little fecker that will bite you in the arse when you least expect it because you think that you're going at it hammer and tongs. Uh, I'll let Emer explain it better, but the award for the courage to make the toughest decision for 2021 goes to Emer Considine. I think I realised that I had a sort of burnout and it was only in hindsight that I realised that I, at the time, had complete burnout and I was just training all the time and working full time. So when I was with the sevens team, we were semi-professional and they trained from one o'clock until five o'clock and obviously I couldn't make the gym session in the middle of the day because I was at work so I would do my gym session in the morning time before school so it was up at 5am do your work then go straight to training and then go home prep your food you know wash your clothes do it all do your school work correct your tests whatever it was and then do it again the next day and Wednesday was our only day off so then Wednesdays I ended oh sugar (laughs) no 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 I can hear you I just can't believe that that was the schedule for the listeners. <laughs> no, we, we have had some connection issues, but I need to stop this right here and go, that schedule couldn't have been advised by any doctor. I, I, I mean, that is just a recipe for running yourself into the ground. You must have been falling asleep on the couch the moment you sat down at the end of the day. Oh my God, that's it, because... I get home and once you had training done and any bit of food eaten, it was just go to bed straight away. I was in bed before half nine, ten o'clock. And then as well as that, I, I wouldn't have time then to catch up with Dean. Half the time he'd finished training and I was already asleep or um, I wouldn't be able to meet my friends because I genuinely wouldn't be able to stay awake. And it was just it was just constant. And in hindsight, when I think about it, it was just mental to even think that I did that. And I got to the stage where I was burnt out, whereas if I realized it maybe slightly earlier on, I could have just tapered it back or, you know, trained three times a week or just done two gym sessions a week or something like that. And like I said before, I have high standards with what I do. So I was trying to do my school and I was trying to do my the very best. And I was I obviously had a relationship. He lived in Clay at the time and I was trying to like manage that and obviously trying to see my friends like it was just you know, there just wasn't enough hours in the day and it got to a stage where I remember really clearly there was one time that we trained in, in Lansdowne pitch behind the Aviva and I sat into the underground car park and I just rang Dean and I just cried and cried and cried and cried and I couldn't even get the words out and I don't think I trained particularly bad that that training session but I just maybe made one mistake and it just sat with me for the whole session I just was on the verge of tears and then I ran out of the pitch and just went to my car and rang and I just I just couldn't even get the words out and I'm not a very emotional person but I think I just got to a stage where I was like I can't keep doing what I'm doing and then eventually 
eventually like the next week I was like you know what I'm finished I'm leaving I'm done I'm, I'm finished with this and I, I again similarly I went to the manager and I just I, I, I broke down to her couldn't even get my words out about it that I wanted to leave the sevens and and she calmed me down and said, "Look, you don't you, know, you don't have to leave. You can just take, like you can just come two days a week, or you can just come, you know, whenever you're able to come." And there was no pressure on it, but I didn't want to train half. You know, mm. I didn't want to do it. What an amazing and, coach, though. Yeah, and I didn't want to do it fifty percent, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And at the time, my, my schoolwork was like, you know, as a PE teacher, you're the best part of of being a PE teacher is going to games and going to those like inter-school competitions and going mm. on the team bus and getting to train after school and having the crack and making a different relationship with the students but I was missing out on all the coaching I was missing out on all the school trips I was missing out on all the fun stuff of my job as well so it was just constant it was really tough really really tough mm. and eventually I had that conversation obviously after chatting to Dean in the car he was like you really can't keep doing this you know that this isn't right like this is not right that you are feeling this way about a sport and I eventually went and had that conversation and and cut back my hours with training like I couldn't cut back my, my job like I'm a teacher like there's no option there to cut back your teaching hours midweek so or mid mid um mid-year so well, something had to give and I made the decision just to reduce my hours with the sevens and then Summer holidays came and I was back to full training and then made the decision just to leave the sevens after that. And I'll never forget it. I, My mum wanted me to go back and play Clare football that year and they they got to the All-Ireland final actually and lost. And not that she resents me for, for not going, for not playing, but um, Ailish obviously was playing for Clare that year and she, she couldn't understand why I wouldn't go back playing football and I just needed a break. I just needed two, three months to myself to just regroup and have like go on a holiday and meet my friends and just not be on a schedule. It was a constant schedule. It was a constant schedule of school and training and what to wear and what to eat and where to be at every single time of the day. And I just wanted a, a month or two of, of none of that. And like I'm able to look back and realise now that it was burnout and sometimes... I'm glad I had that time in my life because now with with the media, with my podcast, with school, with training, it's very, I can feel it when it's coming to that stage and I'm like, nope, I need to start saying no to things. And I'm glad that I had that experience of being burnt out. And even with lockdown, you know, I found it, like a lot of people are working from home at the moment and you're doing more than you usually would do. And I found too that when I was teaching from home, that you're on your laptop from nine in the morning until six in the evening time. And then I'd end up taking two or three Zoom calls for interviews and because I was at home and because I was free, but then I ended up having no time free. And I was like, whoa, this needs to stop as well and put a limit on things. And I'm glad that I had that experience of burnout because I've learned from it. So from one Irish rugby player to another, our next award is about resilience. Uh, the thing that you need after you find that burnout has taken place and or maybe you've taken that hit financially, professionally, personally, uh, resilience is a subject that I adore talking to people about. It's a subject that comes up on the show so many times, but there are few knockbacks quite like the knockback where you assume everything is fine and then the world slaps you in the face and explains to you that's not how it's going to be. 
to push back against that and return the way Devon Toner did is definitely worthy of an award. Here in this clip, he describes that moment when Joe Schmidt didn't bring him to the World Cup and the decision he made to turn this on a sixpence, make the negative a positive. And that's why Devon Toner is getting the Irishman Abroad Award for Resilience in 2021. Obviously, like I've, like I've said it before, I've a few times that I, I wasn't expecting it at all. Um, saw Joe's name come up on the phone and my heart dropped. And then he obviously told me I wasn't going. Um, absolutely dejected. Um, Do you argue with them at all? Because Shane Horgan said that he, he, some people do. I don't no, I didn't. Um, I don't think there's any point in arguing. Like he's made up his mind. There's no, he's not going to change his mind. So what's the point in arguing? You know, um, and like I'm not one for burning any bridges or mm. or saying saying something that I don't want to say. I'm not. I'm not a hothead. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, and as I said before, I hate conflict. So yeah, but but there are <laughs> um, those that tell him where to go. Yeah, like I told him I disagreed with him. I did. I I, I didn't agree. I didn't agree with it. Um, I thought I deserved to go, I suppose, but ultimately he didn't think that I showed enough in the in the preseason games. I think, and he that's kind of what he said, uh, really. So yeah, I was absolutely dejected after that and really disappointed. What I, does I, that I look like, Dev? Like sometimes I feel like when my wife is sad for me, it forces me to actually <laughs> sort my shit out <laughs> yeah. because I have to lead here. Yeah, yeah. Cause when when everyone else is kind of sad around you, it kind of makes you sadder as well. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's some um, part of you that doesn't want to let it in, but you agree with them all. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what did that dejection look like? Was it just a little bit of misery for a, a couple of days, or is couple it just of days, yeah, a couple of days being sad? Uh, I kind of got over it as well. I was like, I. I'm not gonna. I, I didn't dwell on it really, or well, I tried not to dwell on it that much. Obviously, you had people. I think all the the outpouring of goodwill and all the messages and the, everything that was mm. kind of put out about me, it kind of it kind of softened the blow a little bit. Seeing what people thought and what people were thinking, it still didn't change. Obviously, what happened, but it was good seeing all the goodwill around it. Yeah, um, that did soften the blow a bit. But then I had to go back and play with Leinster, so. Well, once I got back into Leinster camp, we were starting the season. We were starting a fresh season, so I got a chance to go back when all the Ireland guys weren't when all the Ireland guys weren't there, and set an example for all the younger guys. Mm-hmm. So I think I held myself quite well there, of playing well and preparing well, and showing showing a good side to all the young guys. Uh, of okay, it mightn't happen for everyone, but it, but but you can you, you just got to move on, like. It's a it's a it's a professional sport. It you know it doesn't it doesn't have a fairy tale ending for for everyone. Like, you know? Yeah, rarely. I mean, rarely. very very rarely, very rarely. <laughs> the, the only fairy the only fairy tale ending that I've ever seen is for Drico. You know because <laughs> <laughs> that like his was an absolute. If he if he could have written a better written uh, written a better ending for his career, <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't have went any better. It was a no-brainer when we were picking out funniest award for the year. The funniest episode of the year has to go to Foil Arms and Hog. Uh, three young men who I've known since they were teenagers who have gone on to storm the planet, never mind 
these two islands or America, they are a global sensation now. And uh, having them on was a rare treat because it's not something they do. Uh, we got to sit down and talk to them about the early days and exactly how uh, hard it was to bring people around the idea that three middle class lads getting on stage dressed the same with a symbol could be funny. The pushback that they received from the audience on it was pretty sincere straight away. It's hard to imagine that when you see them packing out the Apollo in London and theatres across the States now. Bazillions of downloads and all the rest of it. I'm so happy for these lads and I'm so happy that we managed to get them on this year. So the award for funniest episode for 2021 goes hands down to Foil, Arms and Hog. It was just, you could feel when they introduced the act, when we got on stage and they just, because they were just used to seeing, it was really all men, I guess, doing sound. It was guys coming up with the microphone, doing their jokes. And then it was like, then three kids get on stage and they're like, oh, you could see the eyes roll in their heads. And, yeah, this is the time oh, to go for a whiz. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and do you remember that lad in the afternoon? We always quote him. He came yeah. up to us after the gig and he just said, you know, when I saw the three years get on stage together, I just <laughs> yeah. said, oh, this is going to be shite. <laughs> but you were actually quite good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, stick it on the poster. Yeah, 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 yeah. We used to have lines that when we got, um, we, we got up on stage to kind of almost address that. Yes. Which was what we did. Mm. We're, uh, we're, we used to do that. Foyle used to do that. I was too scared. Oh, I mean, you used to get, yeah, we're, hey, hey, we're, we're Foyle and Hog. We're going to do a few sketches for you now. And obviously there'd be no reaction to that line because it's not when I go, yeah, that's the typical reaction for sketch or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's typical. And then they kind of loosened up and they're like, oh, that's okay. They know their shit too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they know they're weirdos. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then we used to say, and there was another line we say, and then we're going to hit that uh, symbol in the corner. And that's when you know when to laugh. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, okay. Yeah, defeat is stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They're like, wow, yeah. the bar, they put the bar really low. I'm comfortable now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think they'd expected us to do like a boy zone or something on it. Yeah, or, or yeah, yeah, or a school play. Just yeah, a play. play or just a play. Yeah, long. So, like, conversely, the same time as you're at that period, you are putting together your pennies and putting the chips down on a trip to Edinburgh, which is for anyone that doesn't know, just a massive outlay and really an unknown. When you look back to years one, two and three in Edinburgh for you guys, Great particularly crack. three, uh, yeah. you know, none of us knew what the fuck we were doing. Yeah. Like it was just so ham fisted as to, I, <clears throat> I guess something good will come of this. And so many people were telling you, sure, you'll be better for it. So there were so many lumps handed out at that time in the name of this will toughen you up. Was that the thinking at that time or did you have a much bigger game plan oh, early on than, yeah. than I ever had? I think, Jared, to be honest, when we went for our first Edinburgh Fringe, we brought suits yeah. uh, for the inevitable award <laughs> ceremony. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and got a bit of a rude awakening then. <laughs> we had the tuxes packed away. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> we thought, Are you like, serious? I had entrance music in my head. Which was like, uh, uh, like the uh, Fat Boy Slim. 
the fat boy slims on Rappo, Barry Rockio, and then when the, <laughs> the, oh, the music God. would be, <laughs> oh, out, the doors would open and we'd come out in a V in our suits. Oh, we talked about that. <laughs> I fantasize about that all the time. Yeah, we had a good laugh at that. Yeah. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> to collect Rock. the award. Like, to like collect the very yourself. Rock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the V. Were you at the front of the course fantasy? I was, of course I was at the front of the V. <laughs> it was my fantasy. If I didn't make it to the front of the V in my own fantasy, I mean, oh, you self esteem issues here at the back of the V. <laughs> but you did pack the suits t- thinking you'd win the award first year out oh, yeah, well, yeah we, 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 we knew something. it was on the cards anyway yeah <laughs> <laughs> we've never won anything no, we've never well, won anything that was so funny as well because like we at that stage people weren't even giving us three minutes in their club yet we <laughs> thought we could do a 60 minute show yeah we went straight Jar, we went straight to 60 minutes <laughs> we actually did our first test was upstairs in the international bar it was a 60 minute show yeah we didn't start at three minutes no no we were trying to go backwards to three no, minutes we weren't short on material we just we were very short on quality material <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but we didn't know that yeah yeah It's kind of fitting that I'm recording this episode having seen my mammy uh, for the first time in a long time this Christmas. And uh, this award is about the mammy's self-belief or the the mammy's belief in her young boy. Uh, The person who's going to get the Irish Mammy's Belief Award for 2021 is Ireland's first ever legit NBA phenomenon prospect. I mean, Aidan Igehan is currently playing at Grand Canyon University and provided one of the most interesting kind of superhero origin stories episodes I've ever put together. This young man went from playing under 14 basketball in Clondalkin to without very much fanfare whatsoever to being recruited by the biggest schools in America all because his ma believed in him and when he came to her and said ma there's a trip to America will you help me go there for whatever reason she believed in him and as a result he is where he is today we're wishing Aidan Nigehan the very best of luck with the rest of the season as the basketball season hots up. You might want to tune into our sister podcast, Irish Man Inside Basketball, where there's tons more basketball conversations. I'll hopefully get another episode of that out in the next week. But for now, here's this clip, this beautiful moment from the life of Aidan Igehan. We were planning an American trip because we won our league, you know. So this is the, you know, the parents' treat to, to us, you know. So, you know, Mick, Mick White, who was uh, our coach at the time for the under-14 four, team, he said, listen, I'm going to organize a trip to, to America. And it was crazy because I was having a really bad practice. And, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was puberty. I was having mood, mood swings. I don't know what, what, what was going on. But he sat me down. He said, listen. I'm going to take you to America. And I was like, what? And he was just like, listen, I'm about to announce it. Like, we're going to plan a trip. And he announced it at the end of practice. He's like, listen, their, their trip is going to be really expensive. So tell your parents, you know, that the trip is 2000 You know, 
this is what we're going to do. So, you know, I ran home and I said, Mom, 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 listen, I don't want no birthday present, Christmas present ever again. I just want to go to America. I want to go to America. And usually, you know, I, I come from a strict household and my mom's looking at me like, but for some reason, she was like, OK, fine. I was like, really? Like, I didn't even expect a yes. So, you know, you know, so she so she made it happen. We went that summer, June 28, 2014. I arrived in the States. Now, the plan was not for me to remain here. Okay. That's what people get mixed mixed up. This was just me going on a trip with my friends. Sure. You know, Have this was Dip you know, toe. this was, you know, yes, of course. You know, just a couple of kids who enjoyed that game just being in America, you know. So but what did happen is that we went to a camp, a 76ers camp, and it was the whole Lions team versus, you know, basically all the Americans that went. And, you know, I'm I'm scared. I'm like, wow, these are Americans. Like, mm -hmm. these are the people who know how to play basketball. And, you know, in Ireland, I was pretty good. But when I, as soon as I saw everybody play, I was humbled immediately. I was like, wow, these people are awesome. But I didn't give myself enough credit because I was just like, no, I'm not that good. I'm not that good. But what happened was when the games began, I was actually playing really, really well. And the the dunk that we're talking about, I was dunking very consistently whenever I wanted. And this is this has never happened. It was just this was me entering America, and all of a sudden I can dunk at any time. Wow! Like this is this is a, a next a next day thing. One day I could barely dunk it, and the next day I was dunking. It was, you know, it was just a miracle, really. And you know, when I was playing, you know, there was this one game that, uh, you know, I was playing defense. Somebody shot a jump shot. I blocked it to half court. Ran to half court, got it, and I, I threw down a very thunderous dunk. Like, this is a, <laughs> like, I don't know what had happened, like, what was going on in my head, but this was a 13 year old soaring through the sky and dunking. So, you know, everybody was kind of like, who is this kid, you know? And they were like, yeah, he's, you know, he's this black kid from Ireland. Ireland, like, what's, you know, I looked, I looked like one of the Americans, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, I looked like one of them. And, and, and they were like, no, is this kid from, from, from Ireland? So all of a sudden, the next day, I'm playing a game and all these coaches are here and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering like, why is this particular game so packed? I'm like, maybe it's the last game of the day. Maybe they just want to watch something. I mean, I don't know. And you know, I, I paid no mind in that game. I caught about two or three dunks. And you know, after that I was called over to these coaches it was Oak Hill, the, the, the Matha, which is very, very good, prestigious schools for a basketball. Yeah, I mean, Oak Hill, just to put it I in mean, context, who went to Oak Hill is like, it's oh, it's oh an NBA God. alumni that, NBA like, you alumni. know, Carmelo Anthony, dude, like, yes. this, is, this is a huge Rondo. prep school. You know, oh my God, you know, countless NBA players. So they're talking to me, and obviously I have no clue. I have no clue, you know, and I'm just talking. And they're like, Aiden, you know, we think you should stay in America. And I'm kind of giggling, like, I mean, I'd love to, it's America, but I don't, I don't think like my mom would let me do, do that. Yeah, so I live in Dublin. <laughs> I live in Dublin, you know what I'm saying? So my coach at the time, Rob, Rob White and Mick White, they give my mom a call and said, listen, like Aiden needs to stay in America. I think he can do something here. And my mom's like, oh, God, no, he's coming back, back home. And he says, pass the phone to Aiden. Passed the phone to me, and my, my mom asked me, "Aiden, are you are you good enough to stay in America and play basketball?" And I said, "Mom, I mean, I, I mean, like honestly, I'm I'm really not. Like I don't think so. So you know, I should probably head back home." And my coach took the phone back. Was like, "Listen, I think he can do something special with his life here, you know." And my and my 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 mom's kind of like, "Okay, like let's give it a shot." I mean, 
So wow. I ended up staying looking for, for schools. It was quite difficult at first because at this time I'm about six foot six. I'm 13 years old and, 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 but I'm really skinny, you know, I'm really, really skinny. And, and these coaches I'm visiting, these high schools I'm visiting, they don't really believe in me that, that much. They're like, ah, yeah, well, we, you don't know how much he's, he's going to grow. You know, some, some, some kids grow er, early and stop, you know, it's six, six, you don't really have guard skills. Like we don't, we don't know, you know? Mm. So now I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. One second. You guys want me now. You guys don't like, it's kind of, kind of confusing. And that's so, a lot for a 13 year old. Like, let's, let's be honest. Oh my God. It's, it's, it's also, a, there's all this talk about careers. I mean, of course, a lot of Irish kids don't think about their career until they fill out the CAO form. <laughs> you're being asked to make this decision at 13. I mean, your head must've been a mess. Oh, I mean, it was, it was pretty crazy. I mean, I, I was, like, I don't really know how I was feeling because I, I, I didn't want to play basketball for a living. Like, that's not what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like you, you said, I was 13. You know, I didn't even think I could do it, mm -hmm. you know. So when they're talking about all this, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm kind of scared. I'm like, whoa, like, is this happening right now? And, you know, lo and behold, we find a small school in, in Long Island and, and, and then they enrolled me there. And, and, and that's that's when the growth and the... And, and the buzz started really start, you know, when I started my high school career, you know, I did uh, my my uh, second year over again because they wanted me to, you know, eat and bulk up a little bit, you know, and get and get and get better. So I redid that year. And then and then as time went on, I, I was I was growing. Our next award is going to go to the DJ Jenny Green, who, if you were to listen to her uh, broadcasts on 2FM or go to one of her concerts, uh, the last thing you would assume is that beneath this incredibly energetic exterior is a story of real life-threatening illness and that her talent as a DJ only emerged through being isolated from the world and having everything taken away from her. The award for best story this year on the Irishman of Road podcast has to go to Jenny Green and how childhood illness eventually reveals this talent and brings her to where she is today. I mean, I was kind of sick from really young child up until probably it must have been kind of until I was about sort of 15, 16, maybe. So I missed an awful lot of school. And it was always I just had this like chronic cough that kind of nearly sounded like a whooping cough. But it would be like it could go on for like days for maybe, you know, solidly. And you wouldn't sleep and, you know, you'd be, you know, coughing so much that you'd be getting sick. And so I couldn't go to school or anything like that. So I missed, you know, a huge amount of school. And, you know, and my dad would stay up with me at night and we'd, you know, we'd put music on the TV and like we drink coffee like at like three o'clock in the morning, everything you shouldn't do. But, you know, it stood to me because I can drink coffee as soon as I get into bed and I'm gone for sleep in five minutes. What, what was um, it? Was it just a, a chronic cough? That's essentially what you had. Well, it was funny. They thought I had asthma, a version of asthma. So I was on uh, all asthma medication for years. I was also on and um, very heavy steroids for a long time. So I was really kind of, I was very overweight as a child from the steroids. And, you know, I used to always feel that when I was younger, because I, I didn't really, I didn't really get that that's what it was. And I used to think, God, I don't really, I don't really eat sweets. I don't overeat. Why am I so bloody big? Like, you know, mm. <laughs> but I obviously just, 
it was the steroids and it was only um years later that um I went to a specialist and they thought actually hang on a second this mightn't be asthma and it turned out that it was a sinus issue that I had which was causing a kind of a, a nasal drip which was what where the cough was coming from so they did a scan one day and realized that on my right nostril I had no opening at all so oh that God. was really where the problem was coming from so I had surgery then to open up the inside and after that touch wood that seemed to fix everything but I mean I was I was 16 when I got that done and it was like it had taken that long to figure out what the problem was unbelievable I mean unbelievable <laughs> and also a massive amount of hope for anyone who's you know struggling with something similar or feeling like you know you can feel when a doctor says this is what you have that that's that <laughs> and there's no way forward. I doubt that you ever thought in all of those years that, oh, we'll find a specialist someday who will clear all of this up. You must have felt that life was a little bit unfair that nobody else has this. It's just me. You do a bit and you just feel a bit like you're missing so much. You're missing like, you you know, going out for friends birthdays or all you know going back to school after maybe been off sometimes for two or three weeks and you know there's like this big welcoming party going back and you feel like you know a new student in the class again and then you know a week later it happens again and you're gone again and you're like this is just too much you know and I think probably then you know music and DJing I mean I was at home for like weeks on end at, at kind of teenage years where I didn't need to be minded and obviously you know my parents had to work you couldn't have someone sitting with me all day so I had music then to keep myself entertained during the day and I'd sit and I had my dad devised this thing right because when I was drinking water I didn't cough so he had like a two liter bottle of water so he'd fill it up and he managed to make this kind of it was like a plastic tube from from an old nebulizer. So I could literally stand and do whatever I wanted to do or sit and watch telly and I just literally keep drinking water through this thing all day. And once I did that, I didn't cough. So I'd be up in my room on my decks just drinking water constantly. I mean, certainly, I certainly uh, flushed out the system anyway. <laughs> and and I just played, I just played music, and then I just felt like I was just getting better at it. So at least I felt while I was missing all this school, it wasn't a total waste of time. And it's it's turned out that that was actually the answer in the end, which is great. So I don't imagine that school is easy. Then when you're coming back in after missing weeks, you're obviously doing your work at home, the assign the assignments that are coming back. But where did that leave you when it came to exams? Well, nowhere, really, which I think was kind of the problem. So I, w I went back and um, I remember it was my junior cert year and I'd missed I'd missed months altogether, really. And and I remember just getting so stressed out about it, thinking, how how the hell am I going to pass anything here? I, I've missed all of the the work up to now. I don't know what it like maths and things. I missed massive sections of like algebra, all these things that you needed to get to the next bit. I didn't have any of the tools then. So I thought. I don't know even where to start from here. And then my parents just said, look, we were just thinking there's no point in you sitting in the junior cert because, you know, you're not going to do well in it. You're going to stress yourself out. And it's really kind of what is the point? So it's only the junior cert. So that was fine. And I didn't sit it. And I was obviously delighted. Everyone else is very jealous. Of my class. I was like, this is great. 
So I didn't sit the junior cert and then I did transition year, which was great. We did nothing. I loved it. It was happy days. <laughs> and then then we started fifth year and it was just some, just shortly a, a bit into fifth year that I got a call from F104 to offer me weekend breakfast because I'd been on Pulse FM for two years before and I was 15 when I started on Pulse. Then they applied for a license that they didn't get and they closed down, unfortunately. And then F104 had had contacted me to see what I'd be interested. So I went in for an interview one day to meet the boss after school. I was in my uniform. I went in like 17 into 104, sat down, had a chat, didn't know what it was going to entail. And he said, look, we're looking for someone to do weekend breakfast. You know, would you be interested? And you can imagine. I was like, yeah, amazing. Well, thought I'm really probably not able for this, but yeah, I'll take it. You know, and I remember I, I came fully, home. fully paid, right? So you're, you're, this isn't like voluntary work. This must have been like your mind blowing out your ears. I was like, this is amazing. I'm actually going to get to do this and I'm going to get paid. I went, wow. So I remember um, talking to um, my parents. They were actually away with their friends for the weekend. And they always say to this day, whenever they go away with those friends, Frank and Lorraine, they always get a call from me with some great news. And it has happened a couple of times, but this was the first one. So uh, when they came back, then I it was like a Monday and I went to school. And I came home that evening. We were having dinner at the table and... My mum and dad said, listen, we've been talking over the weekend and we think maybe you might be better off just leaving school. And if you were available in 104, you might get other work. So, I mean, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I, mean, I took the hand off them. I didn't even have to think about it. So hold the phone. I, hold, hold it now. I, I cannot <laughs> believe what I'm hearing. Now. Like this is like that's an unbelievably cool set of parents, first of all, and in my view. Others would say yeah. that's nuts. Why wouldn't they say the work will be waiting for you there when you're finished? You always have to like the the Irish parent thing is to go. You need to have the living sort to fall back on for Christ for crying out loud. Uh, and I think, what would you do with the leaving cert? Like, well, what I I wouldn't have done anything with mine. I can tell you that much anyway. <laughs> but so you've obviously talked to them about this since, like. Uh, or have you? I mean, that's, you know, that's a fork in the road moment, Jenny, that like, who knows what would have happened if if they hadn't done this? I think, you know, we probably haven't mentioned it in a, in a long time, but I think to them, and I totally see their point, like, obviously, I was delighted. But aside from that, it wasn't as much of a risk as it might sound, because I wasn't going to do well in the leaving cert with the best will in the world. And I had missed so much that I really was just completely at sea that it didn't feel like as much of a gamble as it might sound because I just wasn't I wasn't academic, but maybe I could have been had I not missed everything that I'd missed. But mm. look, that had happened. We needed to find a solution. And I kept always, you know, I'd be up on those late nights sitting talking to my dad, you know, when I was younger, going, God, what am I going to do? And I'd be panicking, thinking, what can I do for a job? I've missed all this and I don't do well here. And suddenly and then suddenly radio just kind of became like, oh, maybe I could do that, you know, because it was never it was radio was never really a love of mine growing up. Sure. But it just sort of became that. But it became that because I wanted to DJ and I thought, well, if I get into a radio station, then I might get some gigs. It was literally the only reason I ever went to Pulse was to get a gig uh, in a club. Mm. And and then the radio thing kind of happened. So it felt like, 
you know, this is worth a shot. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but it's definitely worth it. And to be fair, I'd only started weekend breakfast. And I think within a couple of weeks, they said to me, look, we need someone to read the traffic reports on drive time, which was presented by Rick O'Shea at the time. And I said, okay, what, what does that involve? They were like, well, every, I think it might've been twice an hour for like two or three hours in the afternoon. You would come in and say, well, a robot, tell us, blah, 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 blah. And I could do that from work or I could do it from home on the phone or I could do it from wherever. So I did that five days a week and it did actually, suddenly I had a job seven days a week now. So it was, and everything kind of went from there after that. Well, we're almost at the end of our awards and it feels fitting that the final one should be about honesty and about embracing change. Uh, especially when our chosen charity partner continues to be jigsaw.ie. Over the past year, I've been attempting to run 2,000 kilometres in aid of jigsaw.ie. My iDonate page is very easy to find, and I'm very, very close to the finish line of the distance. I am not that close to reaching my financial goal, which was 10,000 euros. I'm just uh, in around seven at the moment, to be honest. Uh, I, that doesn't mean that I'm massive, not massively grateful to everybody that has given and supported and to all those people that support on Strava every week, the runs that I've been doing. I've been getting it up to about over 200 kilometers, 200 a month. It's crazy to think that some people are logging 100 a week. But for me, getting to 200 kilometers a month especially having gone through the injury in April, has uh, been the achievement. And getting this money raised for this brilliant cause, the Irish Youth Mental Health Centre, Jigsaw.ie, has been game-changing, life-changing and all the rest of it. But the final award is about honesty and embracing change. And it could only go to Damien Dempsey, who released a documentary this year. And in it, he releases the valve and it's like he's only got one setting and that is honesty but the part here that really struck me and really got to me is something that people are really reluctant to try something that we've probably all heard the benefits of but like Damien describes it didn't work the first time so the temptation was to leave it but instead he turned on his heel and gave it one more try and has been enjoying the benefits ever since So if you try one thing this year, take the advice of Damien Dempsey and give this a go. I feel the benefits all the time, maybe not as often as I'd like. It's hard to make space for this, but Damien makes a great case for it here. He's a hell of a guest. Great to have him back on the show. And I'll talk to you on the other side of this piece. It's the award for honesty. Our final award in this episode goes to Damien Dempsey. Ah, yeah, when you see like what people are going through, when you've experienced that that really bad depression, you go, Jesus Christ, if, if, the, if the person who said snap over could only feel it for one day, mm. what the head is going through, they'd be going, for fuck's sake, I'm sorry about that. You know, yeah. I, got it, I, I, I got it for about six months, it was terrible, terrible, terrible. It got worse and worse every day, you know. You said that you say in the piece again that reaching out to your mother was was a turning point in it, and that yeah. the term you used on stage that night was that the clouds parted. I remember yeah. talking to Paul McGrath about the same thing and feeling the clouds descending. 
Right. Was it like that? Like, could you actually feel like the sun rise for you in that in that time? The mother used to do meditation classes in um, in the city, you know. So mm. that's what she said. You should go into these these classes, you know. And they uh, really helped me, you know. When she was like going through tough times with me father, you know, she used to go in here and they helped her. So I started going in and to these classes and you know the, the first one was a nightmare I couldn't switch the mind off at all it was torture you know and uh, I was leaving but the lady said uh, I saw you were struggling there you know and uh, please please come back in you have to practice this you know hmm. you have to you have to just keep at it you know and and, and if you even get a wait, you'll even get a 10 seconds and it'll change everything you know so I came in the next the next time and I think it was the second time I just uh same thing, the first 15 minutes of my head was racing, you know, and then um, something happened. I think I fell asleep or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, I sort of smoked myself up snoring, you know. I could hear the girl beside me giggling. And then, the, I don't know, the, the, the rest of the meditation, my mind just uh, sort of focused. I could hear that voice. I could hear cars out in the street. You know, I could hear the, just all the squeaks of the floor. And this was an, an old Georgian building, you know. I could hear the music she was playing, the beautiful music. Like, uh, my mind just started to focus on all the sounds around it, you know. Mm. And uh, I got this just this this heavenly uh, just rush of, uh, I don't know, I just felt uh, felt the spirit within the body, you know. I felt it, my soul, like, and then, um, and then it was over, and uh, I just I just opened my eyes, and the, the woman uh, was smiling, smiling at me, you know. She knew that I was after getting it. And after that, then that that was uh, the sort of that's that, that that's when the sun starts shining through the clouds again, and uh, we started the depression sort of lifted, you know. When I got that hope, you know, and that feeling within, and to start, uh, I started uh, stopping thinking so many uh, negative thoughts all all day and all night. So there you have it. That's our awards show done for twenty twenty one. Uh, I want to wish you all a very happy new year, a happy Christmas and all the rest of it. Uh, safe travels back to wherever you are if you manage to get home this Christmas to Ireland. Congratulations to you. I'll be making the journey tomorrow myself. Nerve wracking to say the least, but so great to be back in Ireland. I want to give a massive shout out to everybody who came out to the Phoenix Park run. The Irishman Abroad's annual meetup run took place at the Phoenix Park on Wednesday, December 29th, and we had an absolute blast running around past the Aurors. And uh, I'll give you more details of that on Tuesday's show with Sonia. But it was just a hell of a run and a great way to uh, blow off the cobwebs and get out of the house in those weird little days in between Christmas and New Year's. It was just magic. Uh, It won't be the last one, of course. We've arranged the next meetup run to be the Cove 10 the Sanya O'Sullivan 10 mile road race in Cove on April 3rd uh, I'd love you to register and sign up and as I said I'd love you to support my iDonate page as I complete this challenge of running 2000 kilometers for Jigsaw.ie 
I've managed to get an extension on the deadline for it because of those injury-ridden uh, months. So I have up until the end of February to finish it. Should be no problem at this point. But a massive thanks to everyone who has supported me all the way along. Huge happy birthday again to Tina. Thanks to Brian Connolly for his production. To John Marr for all his help with the research. John Maher has really been knocking it out of the park every time he's been asked to provide extra research for the show. Mikey, of course, makes it all possible. But our patrons... If you're listening to this on Patreon, the supporters of this show are the reason that we've been able to churn out as many episodes as we have this year, more than ever before, three times as many episodes than ever before, all because of your support. Please keep supporting the show or consider it. It's as easy as a couple of clicks and inserting a link, copy and paste a link into your podcast app or download the patreon app and away you go and you'll be supporting the continued production of irishman abroad from here and into the future i will talk to you on tuesday when sonia o'sullivan returns for your january running plan all the best and congratulations to all our winners spread the word if you enjoyed this episode or get in touch with me irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com